All right. Hey, and we're going to dive in here. And if I seem distracted at all today, it's not because I had a late night or anything. It's because of the shine coming off of Jody's engagement ring. Um, congratulations, Chris. You definitely are going to be marrying up. Um, she's a catch. So we today, today's a big day, not just because they got engaged last night, but because we are wrapping up a series that we've been in over the last three months. It's, it's a series called His Story in which we have been kind of following the, the thread of the grand narrative that runs all the way from Genesis through Revelation. It's a story in which God is the central character, the central focus, a story in which he is in pursuit of his prodigal children. And last week, we talked about the fact that we've been entrusted with the good news or the gospel message of the, the kingdom of God. And we began to kind of explore what is the good news and why is it such good news. Some of the things we talked about last week were the fact that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, there is no more penalty for our sins. We don't have to experience eternal separation from our Father we can have eternal life with him. We don't have to somehow try to earn our standing with him as if we can be good enough to be accepted as his children. Instead, he said, because of what I, Jesus Christ, have done on the cross, you can be called sons and daughters of the living God. So he has saved us from the penalty of our sins, but he's also saved us to eternity, eternal life in relationship with him. And we talked about the fact that eternal life doesn't mean something that begins when we die but rather something that begins when we die to ourselves, when we submit our lives and say, Jesus, I don't only want you to be my Savior. I, I allow you, I invite you to be the Lord of my life. So come, take control. Begin, Holy Spirit, begin to clean house. And when we submit our lives to him, eternity comes breaking into our reality. And then we are also saved to God's original purpose and plan for us. Namely, that we get to be his ambassadors. We get to be his representatives to a world that desperately needs the good news. So we talked about a lot of different passages that discuss what the good news. There's a, there's a, couple of, there's a list of passages on the back table for those of you who didn't grab it last week, by the way, of passages that articulate the gospel message throughout Scripture. But there's one in particular that we didn't talk about that I want to begin with this morning. So turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1. Because we listen to, to the gospel message from the lips of Paul and Peter and even Isaiah. But who we never heard from was Jesus himself. What would Jesus articulate the good news as? So that's what I want to begin with this morning. Mark. It's the second of the gospels. And is this, this actually comes very early on in Jesus' ministry. He's just been baptized and he is now beginning to share the good news of the kingdom of God. And so we read in the book of Mark, verse 14. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So what is the gospel of God as according to Jesus? The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Some of your translations may say the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent, turn from your old way of thinking, turn from your old way of living, and believe the good news. So the crux of what is, it, what is the good news for Jesus is the kingdom of God is at hand, which leads me to ask the question, well, 
what does that mean that the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near? And, and more specifically, in what way is that good news? And so what I want to be, do is I want to take about a 15-minute detour right now. We're going to go back to the beginning of the story. And we're going to begin to look at what the kingdom of God truly is. And then we're going to begin to ask the question, how is that good news? And then specifically, we're going to then look at how the story wraps up. And what we're going to find this morning is that the end is going to resemble the beginning in a lot of really interesting ways. You don't need to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But remember, for those of you who are here, just think back to Genesis 1 and 2. Because there's a a guy that I really respect named Dallas Willard. A lot smarter than me. He wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, he articulated a kingdom as anywhere where the king's sovereign will is done. In other words, wherever the king says, this is what I want, and his subjects do it, that's where you can determine the parameters of his kingdom. So if a king said, I want every single building painted green, you could pretty much have a good idea of the delineation of his kingdom based upon walking and seeing where do the green buildings stop. That's probably the demarcation of the end of his kingdom because that's where his subjects have stopped submitting to his will. Does that make sense? So let's play that out then. Where is the kingdom of God? Wherever his sovereign will is done. And as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see that creation is obviously part of God's kingdom because when God speaks, creation submits. He speaks and and creation snaps into existence. And then he speaks again and order is created from the chaos. He speaks again and life rises from the dust. God speaks, things happen. And then we read about the fact that God creates mankind on the sixth day to be his representatives of his kingdom, to bring his will about in creation. That's what we mean when I say his representatives. What he says, we were created in his image. That's what that means. We are created to represent God in creation, carrying out his will. But God was not interested in just simply having robots do his will to carry it out. He could have created us to just be robots, automata that just do what he wants us to do without ever questioning it, without ever wondering, why am I doing this? But he wanted genuine relationship with us. And as we discussed a while ago, in order to have genuine relationship with somebody, what do you need to have? Choice, free will, the ability to choose not to be in relationship, right? I can program a computer to say I love you, but it doesn't really mean that it loves me because all it's doing is it's programming. It can't choose to do other than say I love you. So in order to have genuine free will, he gives us the ability, I'm sorry, in order to have genuine relationship, he gives us the ability to choose whether or not to do that. And we see at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is very obviously the king over creation. This is part and parcel of his kingdom. His will is done. His will is carried out. And Adam and Eve, our most ancient ancestors, submit to his will, trust him, follow him, have intimate relationship with him. The first two chapters of Genesis. And then we get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, we have an introduction of a new voice. The serpent, or, or Satan in snake's clothing, comes sliding in and begins to call into question God's goodness. Did God really say not to touch that fruit? You're not going to die. He's holding out on you. Don't you realize that? He doesn't want you to be like him. He's made you deficient. That fruit can give you what you need, but he doesn't want you to have it because he doesn't want the competition. And Adam and Eve begin to listen to this new voice. 
begin to look at the fruit and go, you know what, maybe we are deficient. Maybe there is something wrong with us that we don't know the difference between good and evil. And maybe we do need to eat of this fruit. And ultimately, they choose to eat the fruit. And in that moment, sin enters into God's good creation. And we see the radical impact it has on Adam and Eve's relationship, not only with one another, but with their relationship with God as well. Because suddenly this couple who has had intimate relationship with their God walked with him in the garden in the cool of the day are suddenly ashamed and embarrassed and they feel vulnerable because they're naked. It's not that they hadn't been naked before. It's just that it never was an issue to be vulnerable. And suddenly they find themselves covering up and find themselves hiding from their God. And in that moment... A new kingdom has entered into God's creation. Hitherto, the kingdom of God was the only kingdom that there was. And everybody was naturally a member of God's kingdom doing his will. But now there's a second kingdom that's been introduced. A kingdom in which sin is the foundation. And Satan ultimately gets what he wants done through shame, through guilt, through manipulation, through temptation... And then accusation. If anybody knew about this, they'd be disgusted. You better hide. You better not let anybody know about this. And he uses this to coax his unwitting servants to doing his will. Now, I use the word unwitting because in reality, in this new kingdom, we have this mindset that I'm in control. I'm in charge. I'm the king or I'm the queen of my own little kingdom. And what I want to be done, that's what's done. And Satan is perfectly happy to let us have that mindset while we blindly go about doing what he wants and while he maintains this separation between us and God. And so we see this new kingdom begin to take root in God's good creation. And God at that point says, okay, my kids have turned their back on me. They're doing their own thing. They're following their own ways. And so I'm going to push them out of the Garden of Eden because quite honestly, I don't want them to eat from the tree of life and live forever. I told them that if they ate the fruit that I, I told them not to, death would enter into their reality. And that's the case now. So they're out. They're not going to live forever with me. And we see more and more of creation as things began to kind of degenerate into a, a moral kind of morass, we saw that more and more of mankind simply fell into this second kingdom based upon sin in opposition to God's kingdom and God's will. And so God decided, you know what, I need to raise up my own group of individuals who will represent me, who will be my kingdom ambassadors, representing my heart and carrying out my will in creation. And so he raised up Israel to be an agent of his kingdom, his will being done in our reality. And he gave them the law to show them what it meant to live as his kingdom people doing his will, representing his heart. He gave them the sacrificial system to help them to deal with the sin that separated them from their holy God. And he gave them the tabernacle to remind them that their God resided in their midst and desired relationship with them, intimate relationship with them. But... Israel was still so marked by their own sin, by their own brokenness, by this, this competition with a, a, a rival kingdom that they could never perfect, perfect, perfectly represent God's heart. Nor could any, any amount of animal sacrifice deal with the sin that separated from them from their God. And so God took upon himself the process of 
bringing his kingdom will back into effect and bringing his kids back into relationship with him. And he sent Jesus, his son, to take on human flesh and a journey ultimately to the cross to take our penalty upon him. But what I want you to notice, because we're talking about a kingdom being anywhere where God's will is done, Jesus was the first and most perfect agent of the kingdom of God, bringing God's kingdom will back into reality. If you have your outlines, because we don't have time to turn to each of these passages individually, on the first page, in the very middle, we have Jesus, agent of the kingdom of God, and several passages. I just want to go over these really quickly, because these are Jesus' own words, articulating his desire and his intention to do God's will. John 5. Verse 19, Jesus gave those who were asking, why are you doing what you're doing? He gave him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. One, ver- or one chapter later, John 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, my job is to carry out his will. He is king. My job is to allow his will to be done on earth, his kingdom to advance. And there's no better picture of Jesus' willingness to submit his own will to that of the Father than on the night that he was arrested and ultimately would be crucified as he's sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane waiting for the, the soldiers to show up with their swords and arrest him. And he's on his knees. He knows what's coming. He knows the pain he's about to endure. He's sweating blood. He's so nervous about this. And he says, God, if there's any way we can do this differently, please, please can we do that? Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was willing to submit to God's will, even to the point of dying on the cross. The reason why we celebrate with a cross, the reason that we wear it in jewelry or tattoo it on our skin or or, or put it up in our church or in our homes or put it on the pinnacles of our church is not because we celebrate that Jesus died. It's that we celebrate why Jesus died. He died in submission to our Father's will, that he took upon himself the penalty due us. And in that moment, God's kingdom broke into our reality. And the grip of the enemy, the monopoly that the enemy had on this world and on our hearts was broken. We point to the cross as the epicenter of our faith because it's in that moment that the kingdom became available to prodigals like us. We suddenly had a choice between two kingdoms. We could keep living as if we were still the captains of our own ship in control of our own lives, Or we could accept God's, our Father's invitation to come home. Our Father's invitation to be used by Him. To be His ambassadors of hope and reconciliation. Two kingdoms. Which one are we going to choose? And that really is the question then. Who are we going to accept as king? Who are we going to follow? Because let me make this point. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has broken into our reality, and yet it is not fully fulfilled. God's kingdom will is not perfectly carried out in our own reality. 
there's still pain. There's still death. There's still separation. We still have a very real enemy that is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. God's kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fulfilled. Here's what I mean. Let me give you an example from real life. This next Friday, June 6th, is a, is a big day in history. Not only 10 years ago did my wife and I get married, and she deserves an award for that, but 70 years ago, on June 6th, 1944, was the day that the Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy. During World War II, Hitler's Nazi party and the war machine had literally ground up all of Europe. It had taken over all of mainland Europe. They were winning the war. And it seemed as if it was just a matter of time before the whole world was Nazified and was under Hitler's thumb. And so in one last desperate push, the Allied troops decided the only way we're ever going to push him back and take this land back is we need to gain a toehold or a beachhead somewhere on that mainland Europe. We need to get there. And I know it's going to be hard because he has got all those borders locked up. And so they took 150,000 troops and stormed the beaches of Normandy. And over that bloody June 6th day, thousands upon thousands of men gave their lives to try to gain a foothold into enemy-occupied territory. It was one of the bloodiest days of the entire war. And yet, by the end of the day, the Allied troops had their beachhead. Now, military historians will point to that day and say that was the turning point of the war. Had the Allied troops been pushed back, been repelled, Hitler probably would have gone on to win the, the entire World War II. But the fact that we were able to get our toehold into enemy-occupied territory marked the beginning of the end. There were still 11 more months of bloody fighting. Some of the bloodiest months of the entire war happened between D-Day and V-Day, the day that Germany finally surrendered and the Allied troops declared victory. Eleven months of bloody fighting, and yet the war was over. The end was already spelled out on June 6, 1944. Now here's the analogy. Jesus' willingness to take on flesh, be born on earth, and journey to the cross, doing his Father's will, and then ultimately sacrificing himself, that marks for us our D-Day. The day when God's kingdom, his will, broke into our reality, and he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. However, we're still waiting for V-Day, the day when God's kingdom is fully realized, where his will is perfectly carried out, where the enemy is finally once and for all defeated and he no longer has the ability to steal, kill, and destroy as he still does in our lives. There are still two kingdoms at work, which then begs the question, who do we allow to be king? Who are we going to follow? Because think about for a moment those individuals who were living in Europe during that time. The war was grinding to an end, and Hitler was going to lose, but they still lived in enemy-occupied territory. So how do they live? Do they live as if Hitler is king? Or do they live as if they have been liberated? We are invited, as God's children, into the opportunity to be kingdom ambassadors, agents of the kingdom of God, Although we reside in enemy-occupied territory, although the enemy is still running free and wreaking havoc 
in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, you see the carnage. You see the destruction of lives lived saying, I'm going to do this my way. I am king of my own life. And the shame and the guilt and the brokenness and the addiction and the pain that we endure, many of us endure on a daily basis because we live in a broken and fallen world. The end is coming, but it's not yet here. We live in the already but not yet between D-Day and V-Day. So how are we going to live? i got a question. If we get to be agents of the kingdom of God, how do we do that? How do we be kingdom agents? How does that happen? I've got one word for you. I think I could sum it up in one word, and it's not probably the one you're thinking of. That word I would use is obedience. I know, faith. We are saved by faith alone. That's it. We cannot earn and obey our way into heaven. Very true. But... If we just say, well, all you need to do is believe, that's it. And it's just an intellectual assent as if I say, hey, I believe that this chair can hold me up. It looks sturdy enough. I'm light on my feet. It'll hold me up. If I say that, but I'm unwilling to sit down in that chair, it says something to you about whether or not I really believe it. Right? The act of me actually sitting down in this chair declares that I believe that the chair can hold me up. A belief that's simply intellectual that doesn't say I'm willing to act on that. Well, James says, hey, even the demons believe and they shudder because they believe that Christ is who he says he is and they know what's coming. And they shudder because they're not willing to bend a knee to him. And Jesus is not interested in simply being our savior. He wants to be the Lord of our lives as well. And we can't pick and choose and say, you can save my life and give me heaven, but I don't want you to be the Lord. I don't want you to have any control over the here and now. And time and time again, even Jesus himself articulated that true faith in him would mean that we would follow him and that we would obey him. Go ahead and flip over the page. There's a couple more verses I want to look at. These are Jesus' words taken from the Gospel of John. Jesus articulating the fact that if we want to be kingdom agents carrying out God's will in this broken world, in the midst of this battle between two kingdoms that vie for our own hearts, let alone our neighborhoods, our families, our co-workers, then we need to submit and actually begin to obey. John eight thirty one through 32 To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, then you're really my disciples. If you do what I say, then you're really my disciples. If You obey my commands. You are my disciples. And then, after you've obeyed, after you have experienced submission, then you'll know the truth. And that truth will set you free. A few chapters later, John 14, If you love me, you will obey what I command. The next chapter, John 15, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. And then in verse 12, he says, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? The most spectacular way, he was willing to sacrifice himself, sacrifice his comfort, sacrifice his desire not to hurt, sacrifice even his intimacy with God to take our sins upon him. That's how he showed his love for us. And he calls us to love one another in that same self-sacrificial way. 
we get frustrated because people don't live up to our expectations and we so desire to tear them down and tell them how they're not meeting our needs. And sacrificial love says, looks like laying down our own right to be right and, say, and using our words to build up rather than tear down. It looks like looking at the things that we, we call possessions, our stuff, the things that we have worked hard for, and saying, I have been blessed greatly. But this isn't mine. This is God's. I'm merely a steward of what God has entrusted to me. So God, how would you use this to advance your kingdom? How would you use this to love others? Even if it spells my discomfort and makes me a little more dependent upon you. It looks like forgiving, even when we just want to hold on to resentment. It looks like denying ourselves, even when we feel like that's all we've been doing. And I'll be honest with you, I start talking about those things. I start talking about moving towards the lepers in my life, the people that are the untouchables that I don't want anything to do with, rather than running across the street and getting as far away from them, moving towards them and touching them as Jesus did. Being willing to treat them as human. Giving them dignity. I start talking about those things and I look at myself and I go, you know what, I'm, I'm incapable of doing that. I'm incapable of living that type of self-sacrificial love by my own strength. And God was well aware of that fact. And that's why he gave us the Holy Spirit to reside within us and to begin to clean house and begin to strip away the vestiges of the kingdom of sin and brokenness in our own hearts. And I got really good news. When we submit to God, when we allow the Holy Spirit to begin cleaning house, and we begin to submit our own will to that of God, something miraculous happens. The kingdom of God begins to break into our own hearts. Suddenly, we start finding our hearts breaking for the things that break his heart. The things that he wants, we start desiring. Not only are we willing to submit to it, but we actually begin to want it. And it becomes easier and easier to allow his will to, to be played out in our own lives. And as his kingdom begins to fill our own hearts and our lives begin to be directed by him, suddenly it doesn't stay contained in our hearts. It begins to spill over into our own other relationships, into our homes, the way we interact with our spouse, the way we speak to our children, the way we interact with our in-laws, the way we you know, just spend our free time begins to affect all those things. But it doesn't stay there. It begins to spill over into our neighborhoods, the way we interact with our neighbors, the way we work, the values that we have, the way we drive, the way we spend our free time. It affects the places that we go. We become agents of the kingdom of God. His will being done in and through us, we become conduits of the kingdom in our lives. Does that make sense? Okay. This is exciting, and at the same time, there's a, there's a part of me that just goes, well, I've been following God for the majority of my life. Not perfectly. And I recognize that sometimes it gets really difficult to take up our cross, deny ourselves day after day. And we look around and we see the carnage of the, the battle that rages around us. Maybe we see the carnage in our own lives, or we see the carnage in our family. We see the carnage in our neighbor's. 
And we begin to go, man, God, how long? How long do we have to endure this? Because I'm grateful that we can have a relationship with you, but man, this is hard. And Jesus was aware of that. In John 16, he said, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble. It's not going to be easy. It's not all going to be candy canes and, and lollipops. You know, It's going to be a hard life. You're going to have trouble, but the brokenness of this world, the cancers, the physical ailments, the breakdown of your body, the addictions, the brokenness of your relationships, the depression, the exhaustion, those things will not get the last word. Because I have already won this war, even though the battle still rages around you. And this too shall pass. You can take heart that I have overcome the world through the cross. And, and the brokenness of the here and now doesn't have to get the last word. And so I want to just point us to, sometimes it's helpful for us to recognize what's coming in order to be able to, to remain in the here and now. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And I want us to see how this story ends. I want us to see what it looks like when God's kingdom is finally fulfilled once and for all. Now the book of Revelation, as you turn in there, it's the very end of the book. We're going to look at the very last two chapters of the Bible. The book of Revelation is one of those books that we either spend way too much time and focus on trying to kind of parse every little illustration or we avoid altogether because we don't understand it and it scares us and so we just leave it alone. And neither of those two extremes is healthy. The reality is the book of Revelation doesn't have to be scary and it helps to know the context for it. Revelation was written by the Apostle John. When he was sitting, he was kind of outlawed from the Roman kingdom and he was pushed to the Isle of Patmos because he was unwilling to stop sharing the good news, the gospel message. He wouldn't shut up about the good news. And so they said, fine, you're out of here. And they kicked him to the Isle of Patmos. And while he was sitting there and he was thinking about the brokenness of this world and the kingdoms that vie for control against God's kingdom, God began to give him a vision of the reality of life. Because he began to, he, he was thinking Rome is the supreme power. And the emperor of the Roman government basically is the king of kings and lord of lords. That's a title they were using for the Roman emperor at the time. They would stamp coins with the emperor's image holding the stars in his hand, basically representing the continents and the, the nations. He holds the nations in his hands. And God began to open his eyes to the fact that no, the Roman emperor is not the king of kings and lord of lords. He does not hold the nations in his hands. Let me show you who the real king of kings is. Let me show you who the real lord of lords is. Let me show you who is really in control. And so the book of Revelation reads, it's written by John to a group of churches. There's about seven of them that were enduring radical persecution at the hands of the Roman government. And he writes this to encourage them to be able to persevere in the midst of their suffering. In the midst of the pain of living in a fallen world. Sounds familiar. And when he gets to Revelation chapter 21, he has been talking about this final battle between the kingdom of God 
and the kingdom of Satan that has been vying for control. And in the end, Satan is overthrown. His, his hold is finally broken once and for all, and he is cast away into the pit for eternity. We're done. And now we see the culmination of God's kingdom, the fulfillment of all things. So in Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people, and he will dwell with them. As we're reading through here, I want to make two points. One is going to be a little bit surprising. We can talk about it at length at a different point. And that is, we, think, we tend to think of the afterlife in heaven, up in clouds, playing harps and singing 24 hours a day for eternity, right? But in reality, as you look at Revelation, particularly 21 and 22, God has actually taken his people out for a time, completely remade the earth, and now he brings them back to a newly remade earth. And it's here on earth that we spend eternity in relationship with him. One other point I want to make, and that is the things we're about to read are going to sound very strikingly like the description of of the life between Adam and Eve and God in the Garden of Eden. I just want you to be aware of that as we're reading this. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people, and he will dwell with them just as God had done in the Garden of Eden, walking in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, seeing one another face to face. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am remaking, I am restoring the centuries that the locusts have eaten. He goes on in Revelation 21 to describe this new Jerusalem and talks about kind of how it's designed with gates that are carved from solid pearls, hence we get pearly gates, and streets that are lined with the most unbelievable, uh, precious gems and jewels and gold along the streets, the golden streets of, of you know, Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff. And then we get to chapter 22. I know I'm going quickly through this. I encourage you to read this at length, small groups. You guys will be reading this this week. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. The Lamb is a reference, obviously, to Jesus, the Lamb of God who took our sins upon him. On each side of this river that flows from the throne of God, He says in 21, one of the passages we didn't look at is the fact that there isn't even a temple in Jerusalem, in this new Jerusalem, because God and Jesus literally reside in Jerusalem with his people. There's no need for a temple. But on each side of this river stood the tree of life. When's the last time we heard about the tree of life? In Eden. When God was kicking his people out of Eden because he did not want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever. Now suddenly the tree of life is available to us again. On each side is the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the fruit are for the healing of the nations. Verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. When did we hear about curses? 
Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned and God comes and curses them. We spent quite, about a, quite a bit of time talking about those curses. And we said, you know, in some ways there's some penalty, there's some punishment, but at the same time, those curses were in many ways a blessing from God. Let me explain what I meant by that. God recognized that his people's hearts had been tweaked and now suddenly they were going to pursue their own desires, pursue their own fulfillment in life through their own efforts. And so God literally curses the very things that we as men and women tend to run to. For women, the act of bearing and raising children and the relationship with our spouse, our husband. He tweaks those very relationships. And for men, the work of our hands. He said no longer will these things be able to fulfill you. And in in many ways, he created a God-shaped hole in our hearts, frustrated the very things we'd run to for fulfillment. And he did it as a loving father saying, if I don't do this, they'll never turn their hearts back to me. And so he created this God-shaped hole through these curses. And now we see, as he will now eternally reside with us in this new Jerusalem, that he removes the curses. These things which hitherto had been frustrated are no longer frustrated. There will be no more curses. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. We'll have a part to play. We will actually be doing stuff. I love to sing, but we're not going to be singing 24-7. We're going to have work to do. As a guy, that's exciting for me for some reason. Verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. God's stamp of ownership saying, this one's one of mine. There will be no more night. And they won't even need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The picture that we get of the kingdom of heaven fulfilled is a picture of a return to God's original order. A picture of God residing with his children in the midst of a restored earth. The, the, the effects of the fall, the curses, the pain, the brokenness of this world will be done away with. And we will get to serve our God. We will get to Work side by side with him. I love that. I love that picture. And it's encouraging in light of the fact that we still live in the already but not yet. We still live in the midst of enemy-occupied territory. We still have an enemy that's looking to take us down. But the point I want us to get today is that we do not have to sit passively and become just another casualty of this war because God invites us to play an active part we get to because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross because of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts we get to be agents of this kingdom of God advancing his kingdom will into our neighborhoods into our homes into our workplaces and we live in light of the end. I, I love the passage in 2 Corinthians. It's written at the bottom of your sheets. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I love this picture that Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians. Because it's, a, it's just a declaration of the hope that we have of what the end is coming. How we live in the midst of this. He says this in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, in view of what God is doing and what he will do, we don't lose heart. Although outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day after day. 
For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The pain of this moment doesn't get the last word, and it's a blip on the radar of eternity. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, it will pass away. But what is unseen is eternal. So I guess the point this morning is that we live in a broken world. And it's not because God is failing. It's because we live in the midst of a battle between two kingdoms that vie not only for our neighborhoods, but for our own hearts. The question is, who do we declare king? Who do our our actions declare as king? And we do not need to simply sit idly by and watch the enemy tear those that we love down or be torn down by him. We can play a part. We can be agents of reconciliation and hope. We have been entrusted with a purpose that goes way beyond building up a strong 401k plan, getting that house, getting that spouse, getting those 2.3 children. That point three is interesting. Getting everything that the world says we need. That is not God's dream. The American dream is not God's dream. And our purpose is not comfort. Our purpose is to be comforters and encouragers and ambassadors of the good news. Our purpose is articulated by Jesus on the day that he was ascended into heaven. And I'll close with this. All authority has been given to me by my Father. Therefore, go. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, I'm not abandoning you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age until the fulfillment of the kingdom. And then then it's really on. That's the good news. That's what we have to look forward to. What I love, what I love is that we see the first two chapters and the last two chapters as bookends of this great story of God making all things new and bringing back into reality his original plans for our lives. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the brokenness of our own reality is not the end. I thank you that our own sin, that our own brokenness, that our own disappointments in life don't have to get the last word. I thank you that our physical ailments don't have to get the last word. And I thank you, Jesus, for taking upon yourself the penalty that we had earned so that we can spend eternity in relationship with our Father. And I thank you that we have a part to play even now, that we don't have to just wait for your kingdom to be fulfilled, we actually get to be agents of hope and reconciliation, advancing your kingdom into our spheres of influence. But we desperately need your help. Would you, Holy Spirit, come in and clean us out? Would you search us and know us? Would you show us the ways that we have been trying to be the captains of our own lives? And help us to submit control to you. 
God, would you be glorified? Would your kingdom come? Would your will be done in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, just as it is in heaven? Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you.